Hello and welcome to Water Q&A, Global Water Forum's monthly dive into the challenges of water governance in the 21st century. I am Jesper Svensson. Today's episode was recorded by Dr. Dustin Garrick, an associate professor at the Smith School of Enterprise and Environment, Oxford University. He spoke with a lawyer and an economist and a hydrologist on water governance in Australia, Emma Carmody, Quentin Grafton and Bradley Mongridge. Together, they share lessons from the Murray-Darling Basin for international observers trying to understand a basin at the crossroads. The aim here is really to take the lessons from Australia, from people who have the expertise in the region, and make them relevant to international audiences. And in order to do that, we need to start by understanding the context and taking that seriously. So I'd like us to set the scene by really describing what is the nature of the water challenge within Australia and the Murray-Darling Basin region in particular. To start us off, uh, Bradley, I'd like to turn to you and ask you to reflect on this challenge and to describe how you became involved in the water challenges within Australia. Thanks, It's great to be online and, well, um, I acknowledge everyone on, online and it's going to be hopefully a great discussion. Uh, firstly, I'm an Indigenous person of Australia, so I'm linked to the Camilleroy people, which is northwest New South Wales on the eastern side of Australia. And um, my um, interest in water started very early. Um, so it started about 65,000 years ago. No, sorry, just when I was quite young. Um <laughs> Um, and um, I suppose water in a dry continent uh, is is a a basis for survival so if you don't know where water is in the Australian context you're not going to survive and I think that's what excited me about what Indigenous knowledge can actually influence the way we manage water in this country and so through you know through school and growing up I'd I went down a science pathway and connected really strongly with science and water was a key part of that. And then through my career, it sort of, I keep, um, you know, moved around a bit, but I think seeing how our knowledge is not accepted as a science, but also seeing the opportunity it can provide to manage water better in this country. And I think um, that that's that's sort of my drive is to make sure that Indigenous knowledge in the, in the Australian context, especially in the Murray-Darling Basin, um, ha, has a voice, and you know it's it, it's a lonely voice. There are other voices out there, but in the science space, um, so having a background in environmental science, but also hydrogeology, I I decided to take that pathway in, um, especially in the Murray-Darling Basin, because my country, my traditional country, is in the Murray-Darling Basin up towards the top, and it also has significant groundwater resources underneath. So the Great Artesian Basin, it's under my country, and my country has a lot of you know, springs that have dreaming stories uh, connected to them. So I suppose having a water place, having water connection, it was only only fitting that I, I, I find myself in this space. Thanks, Bradley. And when you bring your Indigenous voice to these issues, what what's your sense of... The, the nature and scale of the challenge. I mean, hearing that opening quote from The Economist in 2003, uh, I think it would be, you know, important to, to challenge that and to bring, you know, Indigenous voice and voices and the perspective um, that it has um, into our understanding of the, the challenge of water planning, of water governance within Australia. And if, if you could just reflect on that as we get started. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, water planning 101 and Aboriginal people, let's say, Day one, 1788, in Australia, modern Australia's history, um, our people on the on you know at the at the front of uh, let's call it invasion, but also colonisation, um, we were giving they were giving knowledge about where to find water, and I suppose from that day one it hasn't it hasn't ceased, and I suppose they're always taking water, um, and in Australian context. Aboriginal people were sort of moved and, and herded onto missions and reserves. So we, 
we lost a right to be human. And while we were not human, uh, we were placed on missions and reserves. So all the good land, good water was taken. Our rivers were diverted, pumped, extracted, and let's say polluted. And it wasn't until the late 60s that we were finally counted as human and not flora and fauna. And so once we became human, there was no water left. Um, and I suppose that's the context of Aboriginal involvement. And, you know, we, we had a lot of those reforms, which can maybe talked about a bit later, but all those reforms kicked in and, you know, it was based around the best available science, incredible evidence. But our elders never had an opportunity to have input. You know, a lot of our stuff is, is old tradition. It's not written down in journals, so it's hard to, it, it, even for science to actually reference that knowledge. So, and because we didn't have the best available science, we got very minimal access to water and rights in, in these reforms. So, yeah, that's sort of a 230, 30-odd years of history in a couple of minutes, in a minute. Well, thank you for providing that context. And I want to now turn, Emma, to you, uh, bringing the environmental perspective uh, and your other broader perspectives around the the nature of the, the challenge, the crisis in the Murray-Darling. So uh, my, my interest in water has its roots in my childhood. I grew up in a country town in the southern Murray-Darling Basin. Fast forward many years, I decided to study law and entered the field of environment and planning law, a subset of which is water law. I lived in Adelaide for a time and found myself working in the Coorong Lower Lakes and Murray Mouth team, not as a lawyer, but uh, actually in the community consultation section uh, of the department, which brought me into contact with people who were, were directly affected by the millennium drought in that particular part of the basin. So that was about 11 years ago. Then I moved back to Sydney and started practicing with the Environmental Defenders Office of New South Wales, which is a community legal centre that specialises in public interest environmental law. And I began advising clients about what was then the Guide to the Basin Plan and then various iterations of the Draft Basin Plan. And that brought me into contact with a great cross-section uh, of individuals and groups with an interest in the management of water resources in the basin. And since that time, I've had the great privilege of, of acting as legal advisor too, but also collaborating with uh, Aboriginal Australians, traditional owners, farmers of varying persuasions, so irrigators, floodplain graziers, experts, uh, community groups and large conservation groups. And in that role, I guess you could say I sit at the interface between community and government, which is a really interesting place to be. Uh, I guess because I'm acting as advisor and collaborating with people within the community from those different groups, I've had the opportunity to understand their diverse concerns and to learn from them as well. I've learned a great deal from working with such a diverse range of clients and experts. And then, and then I guess at the other end of the spectrum, because part of what we do as public interest environmental lawyers is, is engage in policy processes, I've equally had the opportunity to um, understand, I guess, the top-down approach to water management and to engage in those processes. Thank you, Emma. And I think that's a really good context for us to provide really a snapshot of the situation in Australia now and some context around where that sits in the reform process. And I'd like uh, to invite uh, Quentin uh, to, to join in the discussion and to give us really a, a state of the, the facts and of the current uh, situation within the Murray-Darling for those who will be listening to this, um, really starting from uh, the context of the Act in, in 2007 and the amendments thereafter and the, the basin planning process and, and situation that's unfolded since. Can you, can you give us a context as we dive into the discussion of where we are with the reform now, what the real crossroads is at the stage? 
Yeah, very happy to, Dustin. Indeed, it coincides with my particular interest in terms of the Murray-Darling Basin and in terms of my work, because I'm an economist and I've come with an economics lens. And I first engaged in terms of basin issues from essentially 2007, 2006, 2007. And, and I think your listeners need to understand that uh, when we have a crisis in Australian context of water, and there's, of course, ongoing crises, and uh, Bradley has em- emphasised the, uh, the crisis in terms of Indigenous water allocations or the lack of them. But in terms of drought and lack of inflows, we had a millennium drought that got underway in the late 90s, or early 2000s, depending where you are on the basin. And the basin, just for listeners, is, you know, one point, you know, it's over, it's over a million square kilometres. So it's, it's a very large area. It's very low-lying and, and, and mostly flat. And uh, when we have a drought, uh, which we had in the millennium drought, there's all sorts of repercussions for dryland farmers and irrigators. And so by 2007 rolling along, we're in the worst year of this millennium drought that lasts basically 10 years. Prime Minister Australia gets up at our National Press Club in January of 2007 and announces a uh, 10-point plan with $10 billion, that's Australian dollars, $10,000 million dollars over 10 years. So a lot of money on the table, a lot of action, I suppose, from the, from the lead of the country. And then uh, associated with that money and those expenditures was to be a Water Act. And that Water Act was actually passed in 2007. That's a federal Water Act. And there were amendments in 2008. And Emma can go into the details about the Act. But the, the Act essentially was about the, the federal government stepping up and, and uh, trying to respond to what I think most Australians viewed at the time an emergency situation in terms of lack of water for communities, a lack of water for irrigators, a lack of water in all sorts of dimensions, including the cities of Australia and outside of the Murray-Darling Basin. So that money was allocated, the Act was passed, and the federal government moved in to to, uh, provide overall uh, uh, overarching um, direction in the context of what now are called sustainable diversion limits, or we use the, the acronym SDL or SDL. So, so these sustainable diversion limits were to be implemented through a basin plan. The basin plan itself was uh, originated in the context of the Water Act. And this basin plan came into effect in November of 2012. So in that intervening period between January of 2007 and November of 2012, there was a huge... <laughs> Huge debate about, you know, who should get what, uh, that too much water was going to go to the environment, not enough was going to go to the environment. I mean, it was a, a huge, uh, I mean, the, the, the description I can't, I was involved in, in, in it uh, as, as were Bradley and, and, and Emma in the, in the context of engaging in public policy and the science, but we ended up with a, with a certain number in terms of reductions, supposedly in terms of the levels of extractions not the levels of water consumption within the, uh, the irrigation, uh, within the basin. And then since 2012, um, the basin plan has uh, been tried to, to be implemented, and we'll get to that, no doubt, in this podcast. Uh, and now we're in uh, July, in this case, July uh, uh, 2019, and uh, we have uh, failed, I believe, in a number of ways to deliver, not only for Indigenous Australians in terms of the basin, but a whole range of uh, interests uh, uh, within the basin, and so we can get into the details. But that's my that's my take on it, <laughs> and we're still in the middle of a uh, uh, the best way you could describe it as a bun fight. But I think it's a little bit more <laughs> than a bun fight uh, about a range of facts, science, the evidence, as well as the the allocations, and that's that's an ongoing struggle. And so, uh, in a number of ways, uh, we have failed to deliver on the Water Act of two thousand and seven. We failed to spend the money wisely that was allocated by Prime Minister John Howard, and we failed to deliver for the for the people of the basin and the people of Australia. Well, thank you, Quentin. And I, I mean, I think that's a really strong prompt for discussing uh, why the, there's been the failure and, and what we can learn from it uh, before we, we talk about some of the debates uh, around the ways uh, forward. Um, before uh, doing that, I wanted to to just put in some context for the international observers that you know when this act was passed, it was viewed by many international observers as a gold standard because of its uh, attempt to identify objectives for social, economic, and, and ecological values, and to do so at a basin scale, uh, a system systemic 
approach to water planning and management that was based on an in- inclusion of diverse values. Um, I wonder if, if you could, um, you know, first, before we talk about the implementation uh, of the Act and the challenges there, um, give us your each of your perspectives on whether the um, the Act went far enough in terms of defining and articulating um, the important values around water within the Murray Darling. I guess, from my perspective, as a as a, as a lawyer, uh, an environmental lawyer, a water lawyer, I think on the whole it is a very good piece of legislation, with one notable exception, and it's. It's an important uh, point to make. It doesn't go far enough in terms of providing for Indigenous values and water uses. And it doesn't bridge the gap between native title, and this is something really Bradley may wish to elaborate on, but it doesn't bridge the gap between native title and what is essentially a market-based approach to water management Mm. in the basin. Uh, That's one point. However, putting that to one side, um, because it's it's probably more appropriate for Bradley to delve into those issues, as a piece of environmental legislation, I think it's quite strong, actually, in part because it derives its constitutional validity from the suite of bilateral and multilateral treaties, environmental treaties, to which Australia is signatory. So there's there's really this uh, environmental safety net that is built into the fabric of that legislation. By virtue, um, uh, by virtue of the fact that it's linked to those treaties. What we've seen, however, and this is a problem globally with environmental law, is that there is a gap and arguably a widening gap between the enabling piece of legislation, the Water Act, and its implementation, which is occurring through a range of different legislative instruments, starting with the Basin Plan, but also devolving down to catchment scale instruments known as water resource plans. Uh, so, really, that that ha- that's really the grist, you know, the grist in the mill. It's the implementation. Um, and if there's a lesson to take away from this, it's that passing an excellent piece of legislation or a very good piece of legislation is really just the beginning of a of a much longer journey. Uh, and that journey requires ongoing engagement and vigilance from all interested members of society. Thanks, Emma. And I, I think it's a natural point to, to turn over uh, to you, Bradley. And I can just start with a, a brief reflection, which is that in the Western U.S., uh, there is a writer based at the University of Colorado Boulder named Douglas Kenny, who... Um, describe some of the challenges associated with adaptive water governance and water planning in the Colorado River Basin. And he describes uh, the omissions of the past in terms of planning efforts and initiatives and identified in particular issues related to uh, indigenous water values and claims and uh, groundwater as major omissions in previous uh, planning efforts, which have really undermined legitimacy and created challenges in terms of building the coalition for uh, new legislation and, and certainly the implementation of the existing um, legislation. And I wondered, given Emma's comments and that kind of international perspective in the Colorado River, um, your perspective uh, on this issue. Yeah, I need to look up this Douglas. Kenny sounds very interesting. So, like, it's you sort of speaking the, the words I need to hear. Um, I probably should go back a bit further than the than the Water Act. Like, we had the, you know, it, there was a thousand kilometre blue green algal bloom, and that sort of made um, water managers realise that they're not doing it right. And the blue green algal bloom was 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 there because of obviously drought, but also over extraction and, and stagnant water and, and high temperatures. And, and so that Bruggian algal bloom caused um, a reform process and then which led into the millennium drought again and created the Water Act. But also we had the National Water Initiative um, that was COAG, which is a Council of Australian Governments all agreeing that something needed to be done in the water space. And the National Water Initiative was the first time really Indigenous people got mentioned. I think that was 2004. And there was a massive... Uh, yeah, within that National Water Initiative, native title 
is quite strong in there and the opportunities for Indigenous people to be involved in water planning is a must. Well, because it is a, a guideline as well, it was, um, and people, states had to report against it. States are still doing it poorly. And so then we, what the reforms did was separated land and water. And now we find that for Indigenous people that if you separate land and water, which for our elders is hard to comprehend from day one, without, if you have land and you've got no water in the driest inhabiting continent on earth, what's the use of that? And I suppose mm. the separation of land and water did not take an Indigenous perspective into that. And also, once it's separated, it becomes market-driven. And mm-hmm. for Aboriginal people of the most disadvantaged in the country, they, don't, they may have land, but they don't have the capital to actually go to the market and buy water. So the water that was theirs and managed for thousands and thousands of generations, now they have to go to a market and buy it. So that's sort of where we are now. And, and then we have native title, which Emma mentioned, and native title doesn't really allow for water ownership. It allows for access to land mainly. And the water is the biggest missing link now in native title law. So if we, our really only option is to go to the market and buy it. And Mm. that's not going to happen. And I suppose some states have gone down land rights. um, And in the New South Wales uh, example, the Land Rights Act is there for compensatory means to, to, to give land back that no one else needs under under certain sections and you know it gives land back to Aboriginal people that's title and deeds whereas native title sometimes is you know they might have all depends on on the native title determination of what access they have to land and as you go down the 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 scale you know you get less and less um, access to your country but and less and less rights there's no right of veto uh, in some, some agreements to, to any action on your country. Um, but I suppose that is a massive gap for Aboriginal people. So we think native title is a way out, but it's not. It's really just a, a white man's way of, of controlling Aboriginal people's access to land. That's the way I see it, unfortunately. Yeah. And I suppose in the basin context, we own very little water. Um, you know, our land... Ownership is increasing, but we own very, very little water. And because of the market-based instruments in now, it's even harder because, you know, we might be land-rich, but we're money-poor and also water-poor. Mm. Well, thanks for I sharing just, that. And I think... No, please. Can I just add to that, uh, Dustin, in terms of Bradley's comments? So in the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, Indigenous Australians own less, less than 1% of the water entitlements... And to put that into perspective for your, uh, for your listeners, so there are, uh, the uh, US uh, owners and Chinese owners, um, they have uh, over 10% of the water entitlements in the, in the Murray-Darling Basin. That's my understanding. So that just gives you a perspective of, of water injustice in the context of, of that. And I'll just go back to Emma and Bradley's point. Nothing more to add except the, the, the issue of an act Having good legislation is one thing, but it's certainly not, <laughs> it may be necessary, but it's most certainly not sufficient. And I think the Murray-Darling Basin and the water reform process indicates that, that that doesn't mean that you get good outcomes just because you have good legislation. And we can explore that further, I suppose. Absolutely. We're going to turn to the implementation gap and uh, the, the challenges of the act in a moment. But I want to, before moving on, um, the international you know, discussions around water allocation and policy over the last three to five years, um, and really much longer, to be honest, um, have been framing uh, these issues and challenges around um, valuing water. And Bradley, your comments around the, um, the issues with um, native title and the relationship with water markets and the marketization of water in Australia will be of keen interest uh, in those international discussions. Um, because the, many times the first thing that um, people think about when they hear about Australia's Murray-Darling Basin is um, the most advanced formal water market in uh, the world uh, with uh, active water trading, responsiveness to drought, 
um, more recently, some of the unintended consequences associated with that. Um, but your uh, comments really reflect some of the uh, challenges in terms of valuing water through water markets, um, and uh, particularly in a context of this history of exclusion and an uneven playing field to start. And I think um, I'd really like to unpack that briefly, and, and Quentin in particular from an economist perspective, um, to ask for your views both on you know the research and your work up on the policy side um, to, to discuss how um, the water market uh, has worked in theory and practice and how your own view around the water market has shifted over the course of the reforms. Um, and I would say one thing as preface, which is that um, there has been a, a, a tendency um, to, to kind of say um, that the water market has performed well, but the basin planning and some of the governance around it has not. Is it feasible for us to keep these two discussions separate in light of some of the experiences that have been um, uh, had over the, over the recent uh, 18 to, to 24 months? Happy to do so, Dustin, in the context of water markets. So it's, it's important for people to understand when we talk about water markets in the Murray-Darling Basin that water rights have been separated from land rights, and that was a process that's unfolded over, over several decades but certainly has been implemented by now in 2019. And so what that means is you can irrigate it downstream, and we can talk, we're talking about trades here that, that go hundreds of kilometres, uh, so we're talking long distances here. So if you're a downstream irrigator, for example, you can purchase water from upstream and have that uh, come down to you and then use that water for your purposes, or we can go other way, of course, obviously, before the waters flow down the system. And that, uh, that is facilitated by some very large uh, storages or dams that we have upstream in the, in the Murray-Darling Basin, in the, at least in the lower part of the basin and the southern part of the basin. So that the, 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 the water rights have, have worked successfully in the sense that irrigators have been able to buy and sell their water rights, and that's allowed water to transfer from lower value uses in irrigation to higher value uses in, in irrigation. And that was particularly important during the millennium drought. And we have a, a current drought right now in the, in, the, in, in the basin. It's a different sort of drought, but it's still a drought. And that facilitates um, you know, agricultural value-added production. And, and there's no question that water rights have, have facilitated that. But there are dimensions to water rights that, that, uh, that need uh, a careful examination. So one of the issues that, that's been raised is the issue of who owns these rights. So one of the issues that's under investigation now is the idea of market power. And uh, uh, there's another issue in relation to overseas investors owning water rights. I personally don't have an issue with person not being an irrigator owning water rights. And I don't have an issue as long as it's registered who these owners are. Uh, but the issue is, is about market power is under investigation right now in 2019, and we'll find, uh, find out there'll be a government report that comes out at the end of the year. But the other issue is related to this uh, nature of the, the water right itself. So what I mean is, is that when um, you have uh, a water right in the Murray-Darling Basin, it's based on your gross extractions or your gross diversions. So if you're extracting 100 million litres, for example, that's what your right would be. It'd be 100 million litres if you were have that right and then you get a physical volume of allocation based on that and it's based on how much you're extracting. It's not based on how your net extraction. So your net extraction is how much you extract or divert less the amount of water that flows back into groundwater aquifers mm. and into streams. And so that's very, very important this point here in terms of water markets because what's been happening over the last few years and with multiple billion dollar subsidies from the federal government is that water's being moved from um, seasonal-type uh, irrigation for pasture, for rice, for example, and moving into perennial irrigation, you know, for, for watering uh, almonds, uh, 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 hazelnuts, uh, you know, various types of production where you, you need trees, and the trees, of course, they get watered to, uh, most, of the, most of the year. And so what happens in that situation is that the amount of water that goes back into the system from the, those... Um, uh, orchards, those, uh, those, uh, 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 those places where they're, they're growing the nuts, is much, much, much less 
than what you'd get when you're irrigating pasture. And that really does matter because those return flows are incredibly important for stream flows. So that's an issue and that's an ongoing issue in, in, the, in the basin. And then another issue is the, the increase in the context of um, how much those entitlements are being used. And they're increasing over time in terms of how much of the proportion that's being used. And that, of course, is also having an impact on stream flows. And there again, that's an issue because the, the entitlements are defined in gross diversions, not in net diversions. So that's a, that's a brief summary. So there's a, there's some, a bunch of pluses, uh, there's some negatives, and there needs to be some ongoing work about how we can do this uh, and, and improve the, the water market system, as well as, of course, the initial allocation issue, which Bradley mentioned, you know, uh, the unfairness that, that, uh, that uh, Aboriginal Australians do have, have less than 1% of the water entitlements in the Murray-Darling Basin. It's an incredible uh, injustice. So how does, how does that get rectified in the water market as well? That's a, that's a key issue as well. Well, thanks for um, providing us with that because for the international observers, it is such an important aspect. And I want now uh, to, to shift to this recurring theme around the implementation gap or implementation failure and spend um, most of the rest of the time that we have available um, to understand that better and to learn lessons for the international observers regarding these implementation challenges. Um, and I just want to also uh, preview that I'm going to be um, asking each of you to um, identify some solutions to these issues um, as, as we conclude. So you can re begin reflecting on that. Um, Emma, I'd like to turn back to you uh, to give us uh, an understanding of, of what are the implementation failures? Why, what is the challenge here? Well, I guess, first of all, uh, I think it is important to acknowledge that the, the Enabling Act is a good piece of legislation. It is an ambitious reform process uh, in the first instance. However, it is a transboundary system. And some of the problems that we're seeing are problems that are common to, to transboundary systems globally, um, and that's playing out in the implementation process. So disagreement between different states uh, that make up the Murray-Darling Basin and then attempts to mediate that, I guess, um, as the basin plan is rolled out. That's perhaps the foundational problem. Um, differences of opinion about science and what constitutes an environmentally sustainable level of take, which is a legal requirement under the Water Act, keeping in mind that science is something that's mediated by institutions and decision makers. So uh, I guess that leaves quite... Um, quite a large margin in terms of different opinions about, you know, what constitutes that environmentally sustainable level of take. Um, they're some of the key issues, I guess, that I've identified through my uh, legal practice. That's helpful. And it, it sounds to me that science and evidence has played an important role. I mean, we've heard from Quentin talking about some of the water accounting issues associated with water trade, and I know that those have become uh, particularly relevant when we um, talk about the water recovery and water buybacks and, and more importantly, um, the use of irrigation efficiencies. Are there other examples across the group of um, the challenges associated with science and evidence in this process? And maybe, Bradley, to start with you, um, to talk about uh, traditional knowledge, traditional science, the bridge between that and Western sciences and how that's factored into the process. And then, Quentin, I might ask you to bring um, an, an, an economic perspective on that question. Thank you. Um, yeah, look, following on from Emma, yeah, there's, there is a, a difference in the science, but whether the idea is that in a perfect world that, you, you know, you generate good science and that informs policy and legislation, but I suppose at the time of these huge reforms, as I mentioned earlier, is that Aboriginal people didn't have their reports or their science ready to go. But I think as, as we think back to day one, 1788, that knowledge was taken. And, and I suppose now that the system is under stress and sick, and that means the people are sick as well, um, it's time for science to start thinking about 
as you mentioned, traditional knowledge or traditional science because, you know, I believe our knowledge, our methodologies holds the key, um, especially in a, in a dry landscape. And, you know, our, our way of thinking and managing country, you know, it, it is a scientific process because being in a dry landscape, you've got to know when and where and how to find water in a dry landscape. And I think that means survival. And Aboriginal people wouldn't have survived on, on this continent for, you know, since the dreaming, you know, we take it from day one out. Day one is our dream, you know, from the dream time. And I suppose that challenge of how can we then influence science with traditional knowledge. And, you know, unfortunately, our science is seen as myth and legend. And only now we're starting to see advances and changes in the culture of science to start considering Aboriginal knowledge, you know, whether that's through um, fire ecology is a big one, astronomy is going gangbusters in Australia, so or Aboriginal mm-hmm. astronomy, but also in the water space, you know, when and where to find water, but also the knowledge of, the, of, of water itself, of when these things happen. You know, we've, our knowledge system has survived changes in climate before, sea level rises, and and droughts, you know, we talk about the millennium drought that we've just gone through. Maybe we're in the mega annum drought, which is, you know, the millennium is one in a thousand, mega annum is one in a million. Do we need mm. now a, you know, are we straight into the mega annum drought, which is within the last 20 years? Um, and I suppose Aboriginal people need to have a say. And I suppose the, the value of water needs to be put into the way we manage water because the value of water is seen as an economic outcome rather than, uh, you know, the essence of life. You know, without that water, we are nothing. And you can sort of see the impacts that it's having now in, in parts of Australia where towns are running out of water because whether that's over-extraction or mismanagement, but drought and climate change is a huge part of that. And I think we can value add to that debate, but we're just not anywhere near that table. Can I just ask a question? Please. If, of Brad, I mean, one of the key issues with the implementation process has been, I guess, from my perspective of, as a lawyer, the fact that, uh, well, based on my analysis, implementation just isn't consistent with the legal requirements of the Water Act. And I'm talking about the, the SDL set under the Basin Plan, the Northern Basin Review, the uh, SDL adjust, Adjustment Mechanism, apologies to international listeners for using various acronyms, but these are various amendments to the Basin Plan. And based on my analysis and the analysis of other lawyers, they're not consistent with the core requirements of the Act. My question to you, Bradley, do you think that the outcome would have been different if people like you, if Aboriginal water experts had had more of a role in the implementation process? Do you think there'd be... Um, greater consistency between the Basin Plan and, and amendments to the Basin Plan and legal requirements under the Act? To be honest, yes, I, I do believe that because when you look at the balance of water in the Basin, it's, it's you know, the environment certainly does get a right and Aboriginal people don't want to be part of the environment which we we normally get put into so not only do we have a cultural value of water but there is also the economics of water that Aboriginal people don't get a say in so but also all the water while while we're in this mess is because too much water was given away to start with so then you know the the cap was put in place to stop any more new licenses in the basin and I think what if they'd asked Aboriginal people what the problem is, they would have said, yeah, too much water's coming out, too much water's diverted, extracted and so forth. So I think going back, you know, that cap needs to be reviewed. But then you've got the SDLs and the adjustments and the reviews and we're just not party to those conversations. Um, you know, there are an, a couple of peak bodies in the basin that give advice to the authority and they have a role in accreditation or giving advice on accreditation for a lot of these plans in the basin. But sometimes they may not have the capacity to understand the science. They may or they may not. 
And I suppose if they don't have that knowledge or expertise, and you know, it, and a lot of the times our old people are bamboozled by by all this science, and you know, you sort of mentioned those acronyms and those big words. Yeah. When I whenever yeah. I try and write, I try and write so my mum and aunties and uncles can understand. That's the way yeah. I write. But in science world, that's not good enough. That'll just get cut straight at peer review, you know, so it won't meet the requirements of a scientific journal. So where's my opportunity and where's people like myself's opportunity to actually influence science to then influence policy? And I think um, that is something that the, the culture of, of, of water science needs to change. And I think uh, until that point, you know, we're not going to have a say in water and we're not going to have that chance to influence the balance of water in the basin. Um, so it's still some hard yards to be done. Such, you raise such an important point because the language of water uh, is so esoteric. So you have a look at the legal instruments and most lawyers who are trained to interpret uh, this kind of information, they run a mile because it is just written in the densest, most complex language so if people who sent you at university struggle to understand instruments that are designed to manage our most precious natural resource, the average person really has no hope. And so, again, I guess in terms of your question, Dustin, around implementation and failures with implementation, most people can't engage. They feel excluded. They feel alienated. And then they find at a certain point, well, the amount of water we're returning to the environment under the basin plan probably isn't going to be enough to restore its health, particularly in light of climate change. And, and they want to be involved, but they're not necessarily sure how they can be involved because of this complexity, because of uh, the language in which we embed water management. Can I add something to this? Um, I, I think I'm going to disagree with uh, both of you, uh, not in the sense that there isn't sufficient voice, because clearly there isn't for Aboriginal Australians and indeed for a lot of Australians. So I think it needs to go back to the, to the basics, in my view. The basics is, is who has power, who has authority, and who has the water. Okay, so we can, we can add voices, and I think that's part of the pathway forward and the solutions forward. But we have to understand that basic situation. It's not just a question of understanding what the Water Act says. It's a question of whether people are listening. And so it's not just my opinion, Cred and Grafton. I mean, we had a Royal Commission that was commissioned in South Australia that reported it uh, gave its final findings in early 2019. And I can actually quote from it because I think it's worth quoting because you go back to the science that you raised, Dustin. I think this is important. Okay, so it's talking in relation to a reduction in the amount of water that would go into the environment. Okay, this is called the Northern Basin Review. So your listeners will be around all these acronyms. But basically what meant was that 70 billion litres less was going to go back to the environment because of this Northern Basin Review. This is the comment provided by the Royal Commission in relation to the Northern Basin Review. There is no scientific, intelligible or rational justification put forward to the reduction of these 70 billion litres. The obvious inference to be drawn is that political considerations largely drove the Northern Basin Review, not science. Get this last line. This is not only unlawful, but is deplorable. That's not me talking. I'm just reading exactly from the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission, page 63. That's a Royal Commission that's found this judgment. Has there been any change since this Royal Commission made its judgment in January 2019? The answer is no. So that's why I respectfully disagree in the sense that it's not just an issue of understanding the law. It's not just about examining and putting in Indigenous knowledge as much as it needs to happen. It's about who has power and who doesn't have power. And it's about the fact that the water reform process has been set up to provide as much benefits as it possibly can to irrigators. And the implementation process has got flaws all over it in terms of what it's actually delivering, not only just for Indigenous Australians, but also for the environment, which was one of the key considerations of this water reform process. So we've got a problem here called regulatory capture. Now, this was identified by... Um, 
by uh, uh, George Stigler, Nobel laureate in economics, back in the early 1970s, late 1960s in, the, in terms of the United States. Nothing to do with water in the basin. It's an ongoing problem where interests have absolutely influenced decision-making and that decision-making has helped those interests. And so until and unless we engage in terms of transparency, knowing where the water is, who has the water, how's that water being used, and what I would call that is a water audit, that's understanding where the water is, who's got it, and what's happening to it. We're not going to get much progress uh, in regardless of any of the other dimensions that we have in terms of water reform. And you'd think that we'd have that. You'd think that the world's so-called, so-called world's best practice basin uh, in terms of water governance, we'd have that. And we don't have it in 2019. And it's a travesty that we don't have it because that's the sort of basic information, the basic science that all of us need to be able to make judgments of whether we're successful or whether we're not. Hmm. Thanks, Quentin. I, I, I want to just pause briefly to check. Emma, Bradley, would you like to come back on that? Is this a point of disagreement, in fact, or is it a matter of what, what is the balance between science-driving policy and politics and power and how to get that right? Uh, look, I don't disagree with what Quentin's saying, but I do think, you know, a wise person once said, confusion is control. And so if, if the language through which water management is mediated is so complex and esoteric that, that most people can't engage, even educated people, how are they going to know whether what's being done is uh, consistent with the law or otherwise? How are they going to know who's in control, who's not in control? How are they going to understand these complex dynamics? So I, I guess I don't see that I'm in disagreement with what Quentin said. It's just fleshing it out and trying to see whether or not increasing people's capacity to engage would shift the power dynamic. All I could add is that from an Indigenous point of view, we know who has the power, we know who has the water. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a say in that. And I lived through a couple of changes in leadership and policy and government. And, you know, when an Indigenous voice gets um, an opportunity, it's soon cut off. So I suppose, you know, we, we don't have that say, but, you know, look, I'd, I'd fully support a water audit and an independent view or an independent body to, to look at all these issues because, you know, all we see, all our people see on the ground is dead fish, dry riverbeds and pump people pumping. And, you know, you, you, you only have to go down a number of these rivers and you see the huge pipes that are going into our rivers that are just sucking out our water. And I suppose, I, I, well, look, I, I do agree with, with Quentin, and, but, you know, I think um, having a voice and also agree with Emma, you know, that water, water law and water language is so complex. I think I remember one of my old directors saying, you know, water, water planning is so complex, it, it's not rocket science, it's harder because it's so fractured and then you've got the aspect of national and states and are the states pulling their weight? You know, New South Wales is under a lot of scrutiny, but really they're doing what they want because the style of government that's in power, you know, accepts that, that, that way of management and their constituents, their influencing bodies, their, their, um, their, their interest groups that lobby hard. Aboriginal people don't have that sort of lobbying power and... I think the, there needs to be a really close look at, at who has that power and who has the water and where, where's that water going. And, oh, man, we could talk for days on this. <laughs> I would like that. And I think for the international listeners, they need to know that it's about 1 a.m. here in UK um, to, to coincide right. with morning in Australia. Um, and despite that, I'm thoroughly riveted. And I think what I would say is um, there is... Um, going to be a recognizable issue here for the international observers in terms of what role science can play, what role politics plays, and um, recognizing that these are not mutually exclusive. We can't um, uh, have science drive uh, policy in a vacuum, uh, ignoring the politics. And if I understand uh, 
Quentin, your perspective, it's a matter of having the science inform the politics in a way that can make it more um, deliberative and uh, and and ensure uh, the public interest is being uh, served and the processes for um, in, involving these voices are informed uh, by the, the the best available science. Uh, you, Quentin, identified the one you know potential way forward in terms of a water audit and bringing in. Um, scientific capacity to support um, uh, an audit and uh, identify some of the ways forward. I'd like to um, to close um, the panel and our discussion with with each other and with international observers um, with two steps. Uh, first, I'd like to ask um, each of you um, to describe one. Uh, near term, you know, within the context of the window of opportunity that the current crisis provides, both the political attention and uh, the current drought conditions in Australia, what's what's your your priority uh, for um, uh, addressing these challenges? What's the the most important step that can be taken? And I think I would like to go in uh, reverse, um, going from uh, Quentin, uh, Bradley, and Emma. So starting with you, Quentin, um, what's your priority for, for policy? Well, well, Dustin, a very good question. In 2019, I, I think the, the most important thing we could do right now, and it's very feasible, is to have a water audit that's a hydrological water of the basin. There are water accounts, but they're totally uh, insufficient for the purposes we need. And an water audit would cost no more than 20 million Australian dollars. That's less than 1% that we've already spent on increasing water use efficiency and irrigation uh, since 2012. So that would be my number one priority. I'm not saying that's sufficient, <laughs> but this is about it's about shining a light it's about getting transparency of what's going on because when it's there's darkness when uh, you can't see what's going on people get away with stuff uh, that they shouldn't be getting away with there's been water theft there's been people who have uh, pleaded guilty to water theft in the last couple of years there's a whole range of issues that are going on that need to be dealt with and uh, that's why a water audit is my number one priority. But we need to do a lot more than that. But if I had to ask, say one thing right now, this year, it'd be a water audit. Get that up, get that running, and then we can find out what's, uh, what's happening, at least in the context of, of the actual water. Thanks, Quentin. To you, Bradley. Oh, I've got to finish my PhD. That's what I've got to do. <laughs> 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 um, oh, look... We're, we're in desperate need of an Indigenous voice. Um, we don't have, say, a think tank or a cooperative research centre or a, a body that governments can go to or agencies or states can go to to seek advice from a body of knowledge around Indigenous water use, values and access and rights because... Yeah, we just don't have that body and, you know, I'm trying to do what I can being in the academic system to do that, but it's it's going to be hard to get up. But, you know, it's it's this little lonely voice trying to push that. But, you know, we just need a, co a collective of minds to actually push for this. And, you know, I'd love to be a part of that and, you know, because it's, it's a huge gap, huge gap. Mm. Thank you for that, and, and good luck with that PhD. I um, wanted to go to you, Emma, to give us um, your perspective on the priority for policy. Well, look, I think if we accept uh, at a foundational level that water politics and power are inextricably linked, uh, we, then, we then have to say, well, we absolutely need proper governance processes embedded in water legislation. And to break it down to its simplest level, this means at the statutory level we need transparency and accountability provisions. I agree with Quentin that we also need a water audit. We need to understand where the water is going, how much water is being recovered uh, in real terms. At the catchment level, we're in the process of developing legislative instruments which will govern how water is allocated under the Basin Plan. Those 
those water resource plans need to have rules in them which protect connectivity between uh, different parts of the basin, rules which protect environmental water, which can otherwise be pumped for consumptive purposes, uh, and then rules as well which properly acknowledge uh, the rights of Aboriginal Australians, amongst other things. Mm. Well, uh, thank you all for providing those priorities, and I want to... um provide one more uh, lesson and try to be as explicit as possible in this lesson uh, for international observers. And I'm going to frame it in the following way. Um, Australians are no doubt uh, very experienced with visiting delegations from other water-stressed regions, uh, whether it's Mexico and Spain or China. And I I want you to uh, put yourself in a situation of of hosting one of those visits or being on uh, the itinerary for one of those visits and um, telling the, the visitors what is the single most important misconception about Australia's water reform um, that many international observers tend to, uh, to get wrong or to misunderstand in terms of Australia's experience. And um, what's your most important lesson for that uh, delegation in, in terms of what they can take away from Australia's experience? Um, I'll uh, just, just jump in as, as whoever's like to, to start. I think one common misconception when I travel overseas and talk about what's going on in the basin is, well, you've got this wonderful water act, <laughs> okay? So you've got this legislation, you've got this basin plan, so it, isn't it wonderful sort of thing? And so this idea that just because it's on a piece of paper, whether we have a national water initiative, which we had in, in, in 2004, Water Act of 2007, Basin Plan 2012, just because it's written on a piece of paper doesn't mean that it turns into reality. So the difference, that's the misconception. Because it's in paper doesn't mean it's reality. And then how to, how to rectify it? Well, you know, it really is, however we want to describe it, and we describe it over the last hour, it's really about implementation. Are you truly going to implement what you set out to do in the Water Act? And we haven't done so. And there's a whole set of reasons we've explained today what that, what's got in the way. But it's really about the implementation, actually making a difference on the ground for people, for the environment, and for our future. And that, if we don't get the implementation right, we don't get the governance right, then it just doesn't work. And that's, 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 the, that's the outcome we have right now in the Murray-Darling Basin implementation failure. Thanks, Quentin. I'd like to dig into that more, but I think we'll, um, we'll move on. Um, and Bradley or Emma? Probably my biggest aspect would be how Australia values water. And I think because what water is now, that, that's in the water in our aquifers and, and groundwater systems, but also our surface water, the water that's for the environment, how we value water, it's a dollar value. And I think what I'd tell our international guests is that if you value water like that, you're going to have problems and you need to have a different set of values for water because in a dry landscape like Australia, it has to be valued as a, the source of life rather than the source of an of a irrigated crop. You know, I know we need food, I know we need fibre, I know we need fruit and veg and, and things like that. They all need water. But I suppose from a, a spiritual point of view, a cultural point of view, water must be valued at, at a higher level rather than just at a monetary level. And I think um, if, if, we do, if we get some of the, back to those, some of those basics of valuing water for what it is, you know, we might see some changes in policy and legislation and, you know, those states and territories start, will then have to fall in line and start implementing better legislation at a local level rather than not complying at a, at a federal level. Mm. Sorry, uh, sorry. I'd say, I'd say uh, similar to Quentin, when I engage with colleagues overseas on this, this issue, they're surprised about the gap between policy and implementation. They're also surprised about two other things. The first is um, issues we have around metering and measurement and the fact mm. that our water accounting in Australia, despite, despite the fact 
we have um, world-class experts and systems in place, our water accounting is not accurate. They're quite surprised about that, about those gaps. And similarly, when I tell them that we've recovered 2,000 gigalitres of water for the environment and that that's held on licences, which are managed by our Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, they are surprised that that water in many instances, can still be legally pumped for consumptive purposes. So something that taxpayers have bought to restore the health of the Murray-Darling Basin is not being protected under the current legislative framework to the extent that one would assume would be the case. And you mentioned there was one other, uh, there was one issue. So it was, it, was, it was pumping as one of the major, um, the ability to, to pump um, the environmental water, which was surprising to the international observers. What was the second one? Uh, measurement, measurement of extractions. Yeah. So in parts of the basin, particularly the northern Murray-Darling Basin, uh, metering and measurement of extractions is particularly poor. Um, and look, steps are being taken to improve that, but it's a slow process. And because a lot of the diversions in the Northern Barry-Darling Basin are occurring as a result of um, taking water from floodplains and putting them into large on-farm on storages, there isn't resolution yet um, at either levels of government about how we're going to properly measure that and ensure that, that, that all of that take is legal. Can I just add to Emma's comment? The, there was a TV yeah, program please. here in Australia through the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in July of 2017. It took a TV crew, you know, with a 50-minute program to identify what was going on. On that point, it was alleged water theft. It then took that, a TV crew, to actually get action in terms of the metering and monitoring of what's going on in the northern part of the Murray-Darling Basin. Now, it was an open secret for people who knew what was going on, that this was, this was happening, but there were, nothing was actually being done about it. So, so it, I think I would highlight the other aspect of this, the, the, the free press, the ability of the press to get in and show what's going on, shine a light, is critically important. Without that TV program, mm-hmm. we'd still be having all, all this water theft. Yeah, and, uh, and officials would know about it, but they weren't doing it, aren't doing anything about it. And there was a you know, series of investigations and reforms, and then Emma's right, things are getting a lot better. But that wouldn't have happened without TV, without the press. And, and so this is a critical point. It's not just, you don't just leave it to the experts. You don't just leave it to the mandarins. It has to be a matter of the public. The public must know <clears throat> what's going on. And if they don't, then, you know, uh, darkness uh, is, is the source, is a friend of, 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 uh, of the foes of the public, in, uh, foes of the public interest. Mm, thanks, Quentin, for, for closing on that. And I, I think um, I'll just have some very brief reflections before I, I thank you all for sharing your, your time, your insight with um, our listeners. Uh, and, and that is uh, in one of my visits uh, to Australia in 2013, uh, after the basin plan um, had been uh, approved in 2012, some criticism uh, was was being provided uh, in terms of the amount of water that was going to be recovered and some of these issues which have now um, led to the implementation gaps that, that you've identified. Um, and one of the the key uh, people involved in the reform process um, observed that um, Australians like to focus on the 10% that went wrong rather than the 90% that went right. And I suspect that if we were to go across this panel, um, that uh, ratio would be a little bit different in terms of um, the percent that was right versus wrong. But what I think we've done this morning is to focus on the important lessons that come from failure or from gaps in implementation and international observers, I think, need to focus on uh, those uh, lessons from failure or from mixed success in Australia as much as they have uh, tried uh, to adapt uh, the, the lessons from what's worked. 
Um, so thank you uh, to Emma, to Bradley, to Quentin uh, for your insight and your generosity in terms of the time uh, this morning. Uh, I know that, um, like many of the listeners, no doubt many avenues that we could have pursued and should have pursued further, and uh, we can explore some opportunities to follow up on this in due course. But for now, um, my thanks to you all. Water Q&A is a joint production for Global Water Forum by the Australian National University and University of Oxford. To find out more, go to www.globalwaterforum.org. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook. Just type in Global Water Forum into the search bar.